Where do you feel at home? Some of you might think I'm talking about geography here. I don't just mean the place you live. I don't just mean geography. I mean the place that your heart, your soul, your body are at peace. Everything is well with you. Now, this might be the place you live. Your home might be a respite for you, right? Maybe someplace different than where your home is physically located. Biblically speaking, home is more than a place that we sleep, we work, and we live. There's more to it. There's a spiritual rootedness that is profoundly deep. It's in our bones, and home is a peopled place. I find it difficult to define uh, precisely. It's easier to describe it, so I'm going to do that for you. So when I was a young boy, my grandparents' house offered me this deeper sense of home than I'm talking about. Um, I grew up in Dallas, um, and for a long season, my mother and all her sisters and all my cousins all lived in around Dallas. And my grandparents' home was like, uh, it was the place where we would uh, congregate for gatherings, for holidays, for birthdays, I mean, everything. It was such a place of rootedness and transcendence. And you can imagine this. We've got four sisters, and between them, six boys. Uh, all, no, wait a minute. Let me count here. Yes, six. Jeez. Uh, all of you are apart if you stacked us all up there together. So we got into some trouble here and there. Um, and let me give you a sense for their house. So big backyard, which you know is pretty common here in North Carolina, but in Dallas, not always. Big backyard, lots of trees, trampolines. I think every one of us got hurt on that thing at one time or another. Um, trampoline. We had a little zip line thing, an early precursor to a zip line. We called it the trolley. So it, had, it went from the trampoline down to a big tree at the other end of the yard. Um, on the carport, there was a basketball goal. So we could do that. And out back, perhaps best of all, creek. Okay, so big creek. So great place to uh, catch tadpoles, hunt snakes, which we did with rocks, much to our parents' chagrin sometimes. Um, it was a great place to grow up as a young boy. And it just fostered in me this deep sense of home. Now, even, even with that, there's one scene that I can recall um, about being in their home. And let me just kind of paint the picture for you. You kind of have a sense for the place already. Um, it is uh, a cool fall night, okay? Uh, there's a fire in the fireplace. My grandparents loved fires. Even when it wasn't cold, they would have fires. They just loved it. It was part of, I think, ambiance and, and habit for them, too. Um, the screen door's open. You can hear all those night sounds. So you hear the cicadas. You hear the crickets. You hear everything, okay? For those of you that remember, Hee Haw is on on the TV. Some of you are going, what in the heck is Hee Haw? Google it. Google it. Uh, Hee Haw's on the TV. We're not actually necessarily watching it. It's on, but it's low. My brother and I are on the floor playing some game, probably Yahtzee, something like that, um, something like that. And my grandparents' chairs flank us to the right and to the left, okay? They're kind of those easy chairs, lazy boys, you guys might be familiar with. And they might be reading, or they might be half dozing. Now, there's nothing about this scene that, you, that is special, really, nothing outwardly miraculous about it. But man, has it stuck with me over and over and over. It's that kind of all is right in the world feeling. You have those moments where you feel that all is right in the world, if only for just those few moments. Now, this scene happened more than once, but it is a distinct memory that is just sort of etched into my heart and my soul. 
It's an earthly reminder of a heavenly home, I believe. It's a taste of something eternal and something true. That's what I mean when I'm talking about home. So I'm kind of talking home, capital H, right? Now, do you guys have these tastes of home? Give me a nod if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, most of you do. Good. Uh, let me give you another angle at it. This is uh, C.S. Lewis from Your Christianity. This speaks to this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to fully satisfy it, but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. My grandparents' home did that very thing. They put me in touch with this concept of home with a capital H. Now, I think the author of Psalm 84 knows exactly what Lewis is talking about. And I think he knows exactly what I'm talking about as well. Psalm 84, which is where we're going to be, if you want to flip there in your Bibles, has a strong sense of longing, strong sense of longing woven in and throughout it. There's almost this homesickness for God. Right? To be in his house, to be in Jerusalem where the temple is, to be in his presence. A profoundly deep desire to be in close proximity to God without the limitations, without the separation of sin, brokenness, death, exile, etc. This is a desire to not live east of Eden anymore. You know this desire. This is that taste of home. Okay? If not, if you don't know this desire, I'd encourage you to buckle up as we go into Psalm 84. It's going to take us there. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart, my flesh, sing for joy or cry out to the living God. How lovely is your dwelling place, so dear to me, in other words, so beloved to me is the worship of God and the place where this happens, his house and his temple. It's kind of like saying, I can't think of a better place in all the earth or anywhere to be than right here. This is the same language that's used in love poetry, interestingly. But this isn't just about the beauty of the temple and the aesthetics of it. The dwelling place of God is beloved simply because God resides there. And he is the one who we adore. So there's such a, I mean, you hear this in the psalm, the whole thing. There is a real purity of desire here. Purity of desire, adoration. We also see an affirmation of belief in God's power in that phrase, uh, O Yahweh of armies, I think that's a better translation than O Lord of hosts. It's a bit more descriptive. This is a title that more than suggests God's sovereign, almighty power. And there's this deep longing that you see, especially like when you get to verse 2 about my soul longing, yes, even fainting for the courts of God. My heart, my flesh, cry out or sing for joy to the living God. Here's that deep longing to find our home in the Lord, right there, to be in the Lord's sanctuary, in his presence. The psalmist is speaking as if there's something preventing him from being there. Did you kind of get that sense? There's some obstacle, some crisis, something is preventing him, and his longing is kind of wearing him out a bit, okay? My soul faints for the courts of the Lord. If only I could be near God. My heart, my flesh, they cry out, they sing for joy. Literally, this is a loud cry. It's like, if you can imagine, sort of anguish and longing intertwined, that's a good way to think of it. And listen to the language here. It speaks of my heart, my soul, my flesh. These are deep, deep places of desire. This is from the gut, yearning to be united with the Lord, to be in his presence, hungry for communion with God. So notice, it's very personal, right? 
It's very intimate, yes, this desire to be close with God. This isn't just like a melancholic, romantic wrestlings of youthful passion that you see in some forms of poetry. That's not it. I believe these are uh, wise words, old words, refined by years of faith. I really do. Um, and in these two scant verses, we've only gone two in, if you're counting with me, we see a vivid picture of the desire to be at home with God, to be at home with God. Now, the first question I have to ask myself, and I put it to you as well, do I ache for God like this? Or do you just kind of go, whoa, man, too intense, too much. But do you ache for God like this? Do you feel this longing? Do you hunger for God in this way? Do you thirst for his presence, for the worship of the Lord? Good question. I'll leave it out there, okay? Even the sparrow, we're in verse 3, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Now, if you hit verse 3, there's really a measure of envy here. It really is. Even though it's still couched in the language of love and beauty and all that stuff, even the sparrow has a home. Even the sparrow, probably in allusion to the open-air parts of the temple courts where the birds would nest up above, they have a home, Lord, in you, near your altar. They have a safe place to call home and to raise their young, a place near your altar. Again, here's that desire to be close to God in close proximity to the Lord, the safety that the Almighty Sovereign Lord provides. So the psalmist is a bit jealous here of the sparrow and the swallow. There's a certain wistfulness here. The sparrow has a home and it's near the altar of God. It's near God. Okay? We get to verse 4. Listen for the Beatitudes in this psalm. There's uh, three of them, I believe, if I count it correctly. Uh, blessed are those, which means uh, you can think of it as blessed, certainly. Happy, maybe even better, holy contented. So blessed are those, happy are those, holy contented are those who dwell in your house, who are planted and rooted in your house. They ever sing your praises. And the psalmist, I mean, he's more or less summarizing... Uh, the sentiments of verses 1 through 3. Now, the temple was God's house. And think of it this way. And all those present are his guests. Okay? Priests, the other ministers, resided there until it was their turn to serve. They had a rotation. Singers and musicians were also housed there in order to be available to serve. And they would rotate in and out. Now, do you hear the psalmist envy over those who are in the holy city and serving at the temple? Do you hear that, that almost... I don't say jealousy, but I will. Jealousy over those who literally reside at the temple, whose home is there. Their home is literally close to God. He longs for this, wishes for this, envies this. So a lot's been said here in just four verses, right? And let me just sort of summarize it. I long to be in God's presence with every fiber of my being, to be in the temple in Jerusalem in this case. That's where his glory dwelt in the Old Testament. That's the place I want to be. And I want to be there all the time. It's blessed and it's a safe place to be praising the living God. Okay? That's sort of the first chunk of this psalm, those first four verses. And then we move into verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength, and each one appears before God in Zion. That's the next chunk I want to take on here. Again, a second beatitude. Blessed, happy, or contented are those whose strength is in you. In other words, who find their strength in the right place, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Now notice, there's a tonal shift. There's a thematic shift here. 
We're on a journey now. We're now on the highways that go to Zion, okay? Things really come into focus here in verse 5. The core theme, uh, the big idea that drives this psalm is this, pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. We ain't home yet, in other words. We're journeying. We are traveling. We are sojourners on a journey headed somewhere specific, in this case, to worship the Lord in his temple in Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts, probably. Uh, verses 5 and 7, they are a picture of people in motion, people in transit. They haven't arrived yet, but they're headed in the right direction. They're homeward bound. Okay, They're going to Jerusalem. Now, this does apply to us, don't you think? We're on a journey as well. We're earthly pilgrims and heavenly sojourners. So verses 5 through 7 begins with that happy or blessed or utterly contented are those who find their strength for this journey in God. They don't look for the strength in themselves or in others, but in the Lord. And what a great line, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. Isn't that so wonderful and so vivid? Your heart is set on the path that leads home. Mount Zion, where Jerusalem was, where the temple was. These pilgrim highways, this mention of, it, mention of it, this would have made a lot of sense to the original readers. I mean, Jews returned to Jerusalem a few times a year for one of these big annual festivals, right? So they know these highways. They know what it's talking about. And the fact that it's sort of spoken of as kind of within our hearts in some way. The tone of these journeys would be celebratory and they would be expectant. And it, to give you sort of a, a picture of it, envision like a traveling processional a family and friends, like most of your, maybe your small village that you lived in, journeying to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. That's the picture. And where do these pilgrim paths lead? Well, ultimately, we know they go to Jerusalem, but what about between uh, here and Jerusalem? Well, this is where verse 6 comes in. Going through the Valley of Baca, where do these pilgrim paths lead? Well, evidently, they go through the Valley of Baca. In other words, they go straight through difficult, treacherous terrain. Now, that'll preach. That might be another sermon. We're not going to go there fully. Valley of Baca is not the easiest uh, phrase to translate, but the meaning of it is uh, consistent, I think, either way we go with it. There's a couple different meanings. It can mean like a valley of tears, valley of weeping. In other words, a place of hardship. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it can also describe a really thirsty, arid place where things just don't grow, okay? A place bereft of much life. So in either meaning, we see adversity. So when you think of Baca, think of adversity. So notice, as they pass through these places, not if they do, as they do. So it's promised, as they travel through adverse places, challenging places. Now, you would not want to make the Valley of Baca a pit stop if you had the choice. You wouldn't have done it. But though I walk through the Valley of the Shadow of Death, you are with me, okay? Now, what do these pilgrims and sojourners do as they journey home, going through the Valley of Baca, going through this place of adversity? They don't just kill time, okay? They don't just wait for death to come. They don't just idly wait for heaven. They don't decide to just make it their home. In other words, give up and stop the journey. What do these pilgrims do in the midst of adversity? And I think 6 and 7 tell us. They describe the protection and provision of the Lord on the journey and they describe how these pilgrims respond to these desert provisions, to uh, this manna. Listen, to, I think this is great. When they pass through the Valley of Baca, arid, challenging places, adverse places, they make it a place of springs. What a wonderful phrase. They bring life into desolate places. God takes their tears, their hardships, and he births something with them. While there is emptiness and death, 
They fill it with the life of God. That's what a true sojourner does. That's a biblical pilgrim. They bless every place where they set foot. So as Christians, kind of our task, if you will, is to leave a wake of goodness in every place we set foot. So to make the valley that nothing grows here into a place of springs. Our tears become water in a dry place and our offering yields life. So we bring life along the journey as we go. And by the way, what else? Well, this is quite helpful. Oh, God sends rain as well, which comes out in verse six. It talks about the early rains turning into pools, which think of the picture here. There's more moisture than the ground can hold. It's a picture of abundance, right? God giving just very abundantly, very extravagantly. And this is important because it reminds us that God provides. God provides fuel for the journey. He doesn't lead us into desert places and desert us and say, well, tough season. You know, have at it. I'll see you on the other side. See you in Zion. Adios. He doesn't do that. And growth and life spring up in these unexpected and impossible arid places through the rain that God provides. Now, the other hopeful thing I find as I read through verse 6 uh, is let's remember we're on a journey, so that means we're moving we're in motion. So in other words, we don't stay in the Valley of Baca forever. That's not just life beginning to end. We don't remain in these arid, thirsty places or the Valley of Tears forever. We're not on an endless sojourn of suffering with no place to rest our head. We're pilgrims in motion. We encounter this especially as we get to verse 7, and it speaks to these pilgrims, these sojourners going from, and here's a familiar phrase to you, from strength to strength. Strength to strength, from glory to glory, Paul might say, from provision to provision, from manna today to manna tomorrow. It's a picture of people keeping at it, right? They keep running the race until they make it home, until each appears before God in Zion. But my question here is, how in the world do they keep going? How do they keep going? That's where we looked at this phrase, strength to strength, okay? On these pilgrim highways, there were stops, along the way. There were places for you to pause, to gather your strength, to uh, refresh. There were halting places, like stations, if you can think of it. And they constantly bought, dotted this path to Jerusalem. So if you're a sojourner, you depended on these places to make the journey, certainly in a desert climate. They're like a far more urgent version of like the modern-day rest stop. A lot more urgent, a lot more necessary, right? And they mark the journey, strength to strength. So your journey from strength to strength, knowing that there's going to be provisions even in the wilderness that God will provide, that these little stations will be there so we can trust and move from strength to strength, from grace to grace. Okay? That's how we keep going, because God provides along the way. Eight and nine, uh, just a brief aside here. Uh, o Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. You know, eight is just a one level asking for the Lord to deliver on his promise of protection. I've just said, this is what the Lord does. He'll provide for me. Oh, Lord, please do it. <laughs> please do it. Bring me home, Lord. Make sure that I arrive safely. For those pilgrim highways, stations to be there, please make them be there. Hear my prayer. Hear me, Lord God Almighty. Uh, capable, sovereign God. Listen to me. Consider me. See me, O God of Jacob. Lord, make good on your promises. And nine is sort of an aside, uh, almost a parenthetical common interlude, whatever you want to call it. It's like this mini intercession for the king of Israel, our, your anointed one. That's who it's talking about, okay? 
Lord, give him favor. It's a corporate plea. Strengthen and protect the king because he's our earthly protector and he's a key connection to you. So there's a little bit of a, uh, a request there. And then we wrap it up with a big bang, sort of the fourth chunk of this psalm, verses 10 to 12. For a day, and this is so familiar. There's so many songs have been written about this. For a day in your courts, it's better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now, we're sort of reiterating this idea of hunger and thirst and longing for God. Um, if you didn't get that in the first two verses, this idea of his heart and his flesh and his soul yearning for God, if you didn't get that in the first two verses, you're going to get it here, okay? You're going to get it in verse 10. That should do the trick. Given the choice between it one day, one day with the Lord and a thousand somewhere else, I'll choose God. Now, think with me for a minute. Think of the most beautiful place you've seen or visited. Okay, bring that to mind. Everybody got something in mind? Yep. Yes. Are you awake? Are you with me? You got that beautiful place in your mind? Okay. Places where your hearts or your souls were thrilled, a place maybe of rest, of adventure, you felt really alive. Think of that place. Maybe it's home. Maybe it's not. It's okay. No judgment here. Uh, did you want to leave? Did you want to leave or did you want to kind of stay there, camp there? You want to stay there. Wouldn't you love a thousand days in Maui? That'd be okay. I'd be okay with that. Uh, Jude and I spent a brief season in Italy. I would take a thousand days in Italy in a heartbeat. But the psalmist says, you know what? That's easy. There's no contest. I would rather be with the Lord. And he turns up the heat a little bit in the latter part of verse 10. Given the choice between being essentially a servant worker, that's the doorkeeper uh, phrase, who stands at the thresholds of God's house, mind you, not in the inner courts, not near the altar, but sort of on the outskirts of what's going on at the temple. Between that and having a dwelling place, i.e. a home with the wicked or the worldly, he's going to choose the lowly place of service in God's house. Easy, no contest. The lowliest place near the Lord is better than the best seat in the house of the depraved. Do you hear the contrast there? That's how much he yearns for the Lord. One day with you, it's better than a gazillion elsewhere. It doesn't matter where that place is. Better to be a servant in your house than to be a homeowner, full-time resident in a worldly evil place. Again, there's that pure desire for God's presence, for communion with him. And then wrapping it up, 11 and 12, God is our portion in, these, in, this, in verse 11. He's our sun, which is a source of light and life. Our planet is our shield. He's our protection. Uh, and God is pictured here as generous and extravagant. No good thing to see withhold. Okay, He's not uh, stingy or hesitant to provide on the journey. He takes care of us on the journey. And the final beatitude, verse 12, our third and final beatitude, is kind of a benediction. Happy or utterly contented or blessed are those whose trust is in you. The Lord is there to guide on the journey, to be with us on the journey, uh, to take us from strength to strength, from glory to glory. Notice the blessing is not limited to those who stay in the sanctuary or to those who are on pilgrimage in Jerusalem. The blessing is for all who are in the presence of the Lord by faith. Okay, Blessed are those who trust in you. So in other, in other words, wherever God is, there's home. <laughs> wherever God is, that's our home. Now, 
There's, there's some great news about that that I can't tease out fully, but I'm going to speak to it a little bit. That's wonderful news. Obviously, God is resident in our hearts, is he not? The Holy Spirit lives here, so he's very close. So individually, God is with us, but he's also among us right now as a worshiping community corporately. Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them, right? So in reality, we're never far from home. We're never far from home. That's the promise of new covenant living. We're never far from home. We don't have to journey to Jerusalem to meet the Lord, right? He's resident in our hearts, in our fellowship, in our worship. We're never far from home. Okay. A couple of things I want to draw out about this psalm. Uh, There are many things, but I just want to limit it to two, if I can. I will do my best. Um, And I alluded to this earlier. I want you to observe, do you see the purity and the intensity of the desire for God? You see this. There's a pure desire, an adoration of God. And I posed this question earlier, and I I want to throw it at us in different ways right now. Are we this hungry and thirsty for the Lord? (laughs) Are we? Do we long for the Lord in this way? Uh, Let me boil it down to something maybe a little more bite-sized. Do you come to Sunday worship? with any level of desire that approaches this? Or do you just kind of go, eh, going to Sunday school, going to church? Do you come to worship expecting something? I often think a great tagline for a church would just be, come hungry or come thirsty, something along those lines. Think of the picture of fellowship at the end of Acts 2. And we talk about this uh, in terms of at the church, in terms of shared life, one of the tenets here. Um, early church eagerly met. They experience teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, prayers, and this end of Acts 2. It's a beautiful picture. It's a passage you know very well. They lived in a world set against their Christian faith, very antagonistic against their faith. They needed the Lord. They needed each other. They were strong desire, profound need. Do we live this close to the bone? Do we desire and long for the Lord in this way? Do we lean on him in this way? That's the first thing, desire for God. Do you long for God in this way? Second part, and we're going to go back to this theme of home, okay, that we began with. Uh, we have an interesting reality as Christians. We are dual citizens. We're dual citizens. Some of you are going, I know what you mean. Some of you are wondering, what in the world I'm talking about? One author puts it this way. We're resident aliens. Isn't that a great paradox? Resident aliens. So let me explain that. So we're sojourners on the earth, right? We live here. We're called to make it a place of springs, to bring the kingdom of God where we travel. And we're also made for another place, which Lewis talked about in that quote earlier in the sermon. We're journeying to this heavenly place. So our life is a journey to be at home with the Lord. This place isn't our final destination, our resting place. We're passing through. But we have this dual citizenship, right? We're a citizen of earth. We're a citizen of heaven. Okay? Now, How many of you, let's do a raise of hands, how many of you find it easy to be a dual citizen? Freddie does, right on. Somebody does, somebody's got to, and that's because he's pure in heart. It is not easy to be a dual citizen. It's not easy. I mean, don't you guys feel the tension of this? I mean, no hands, just, I mean, one hand shot up. Everybody else was, whoop, I'm gonna sit on them. And I understand why. There's a tension here. Many Christians will pick one home over the other, one of those polarities, but not both. See if you can locate yourself here. Okay, so here's option one, right? A purely earthly existence. So you make yourself comfortable here, okay? You do that. Uh, You live as if you're not going anywhere. 
Okay, you just root in. Uh, your roots are purely earthly. So that's sort of one, uh, one option. Or the other option, you view yourself as a citizen of heaven and only that. So you might have your head in the clouds a bit, right? This life doesn't matter. We don't need to invest in the here and now, which is unfortunate because that includes people. Heard this phrase, you're so set on heaven that you're of no earthly good. Okay, that's option two. So we can't, it's a both and, isn't it? <laughs> it's not an either or. God wants us invested in the here and now, earthly life, right? And he also wants us to long for a heavenly home. Sometimes this is difficult for us. We'd rather kill that desire and that longing. It's just a little too painful. But we need to be rooted in both and alive to both and living in the tension of both. But it's not easy to be dual citizens, is it? Because we have to live with longing and ache if we do. Okay? In either case, back up. Uh, and that's sort of the second area, that home dual citizenship. But in either case, I think the call is the same. Home is where the Lord is. Home is where the Lord is. It not, it's not where our house is located necessarily, though that may be a respite and a beautiful place for us. But home certainly involves place. Home involves a geography, but it's not defined by it. It's not limited by it. Home in our faith is first and foremost a person, Jesus. Home is first and foremost a person, Jesus. We live in exile until he finds us and he brings us home, okay? Also, home is a peopled place. Notice that home is defined relationally. I love that. Uh, home is defined as, as being close to God, being close to my brothers and sisters, being close to my family, right? It's proximity. It's relational. Close to those, those you love most and best. Communion, fellowship, these things. Okay, let me boil it all down for you. I'll put it in two questions because I've thrown about 20 at you. Probably not fair. So for those of you who are like, give me my takeaways. Here's your takeaways, okay? Boiling it all down. Two questions. Two questions. Do you long for the Lord? That's one. And two, where does your heart call home? Okay? Do you long for the Lord? Where does your heart call home? Let's pray. Uh, Lord Christ, uh, we get confused on this stuff. It is difficult to be so invested in our earthly life and equally maintain our connection with you knowing that there's a different and better place and that both places matter <laughs> and that you have work for us to do here, springs for us to make, kingdom uh, things to bring into this world, life to bring, souls to save, all these things. Jesus, would you help us bear uh, our dual citizenship well? And would you give us this longing and desire that we see in the psalm? so deep and unrelenting and uncompromising. Thank you for our time and for the worship of you. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.